Father, we come to you as a body of believers. And we thank you, Lord, that even though we're a group of individuals, yet we're one in Christ. We're together as we walk through this world and we all have our struggles with sin. Not one of us are perfect. Not one of us are everything that we should be. And yet you love us, you receive us, and you accept us, not on the basis of what we've done or haven't done, but on the basis of Jesus Christ and his righteousness and his sacrifice, his resurrection from the dead. And so we come to you today saying that we don't have any righteousness except the righteousness of Christ. We don't have any hope except the hope that Christ gives us. And we don't have any worthiness to come before you except the worthiness of the Lord Jesus Christ. So all praise, glory, and honor goes to the Lord Jesus Christ this morning. Father, we thank you for all the things that you've seen us through. We thank you for the storms of life that threaten to undo us. And yet you said no and you said peace be still. And uh, you saw us through. We want to thank you, Lord, for the times when we were attacked by the roaring lion. And you said not today. And you held him off. We want to thank you for the times when the world came against us and pressured us and we were tempted to compromise we were tempted to give in we were tempted to abandon something that we believe in a conviction of our heart and yet your holy spirit rose up within us and gave us power and strength to overcome and i want to thank you and praise you today that no matter how we feel no matter what we're going through no matter what has happened to us no matter what the world may think of us We've been made more than conquerors through Christ Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. So we do what the book of James says and we count it all joy when we fall into various trials because we know that the testing of our faith is going to work perseverance in our lives. It makes us stronger. It gives us endurance. It builds our faith. And so, Lord, we rejoice because it really is true Everything we go through works together for good because we love you and we're called according to your purpose and you don't allow anything to happen to us or allow us to go through anything that is not going to be for our benefit and for your glory. So we give you thanks and we give you praise. We thank you for working on behalf of our brothers and sisters over the years and decades that we've been here. And we thank you for the miracles that we have seen. We thank you for recoveries that we have seen. We thank you for life that was supposed to end that has gone on in some cases for decades. We praise you that you care about your children. And so we pray today that you would heal those that are sick. We pray that you would comfort the grieving. We pray, Father, that those who are going through trials, you would provide for their needs and give them a sense of your presence. And we pray today that you would bless this time together as we preach your word. Help me to preach. Help all of us to listen and to learn and to apply. And we pray that you would bring anyone here who is lost today into a saving relationship with the Father through the Lord Jesus Christ. We pray, Lord, for people who need to become church members here, and we pray that they would do that, and pray that all of us would be blessed, and we pray this all in your name and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. If you would take your Bible this morning, and we are in the uh, second chapter of the book of John, John chapter 2, and uh, we're going to start reading at uh, verse 12 
in just a second. Now, when I was in 1985 and I was at Criswell College sitting in a class with Dr. Alan Street, and he was an expert in cults, and we were going through some things about it and also going through the book of Acts at the same time, and he made a statement that I've uh, never forgotten. He said, most of the cults, false religions and things, if they do acknowledge Jesus, they either emphasize his humanity, he was just a man, just a moral leader, a teacher, a philosopher, whatever, or they emphasize his deity and take away his humanity. He was God, but he wasn't in a body. And some even teach that he wasn't always the son of God, that he didn't become the son of God until he was baptized by John and the dove came down. Then he became the son of God. And then when he was on the cross, then God left him and he was just a man. Weird, weird things like that. But the Bible teaches what we call Theologically, the hypostatic union. Doesn't that sound cool? The hypostatic union. And that means God, Jesus was 100% God and 100% man. And uh, that's why he was qualified to die on the cross for us. Because you can't nail a spirit to the cross. And without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And so God cannot die, and God can't bleed, but humans can. And so the problem is solved when God became man, and then he lived a perfect life so that when he died on the cross, he could actually physically die, and his blood was shed to cover our sins. What an amazing God that we serve. And so we're going to talk today about the humanity of Jesus to make sure we understand that when the Bible says he is a sympathetic high priest, it's because he's been here. He's walked in your shoes. He's been through your trials. He's been in your deserts. He's climbed your mountains. And he knows what you're going through. He knows what it's like. And that's not only because he came to earth, but also because he created you and he knows you. And he prepares you for everything that you are going through and empowers you for it. But he has also experienced it. Let's never, ever forget that. So let's talk about, as we look in John chapter 2, and we see the human side of Jesus. Let's go to verse 12. John chapter 2, verse 12. Have you found it? If you have, say amen. Good. After this, he went down to Capernaum, his mother, he, his mother, his brothers, and his disciples, and they did not stay there many days, just a few. And it says in verse 3, now the Passover of the Jews was at hand, it was the spring of the year in other words, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves and the money changers doing business. And when he had made, is this the Jesus you're used to? A whip of cords. He drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and poured out all of the changers money can you imagine the noise of all of those coins and overturned the tables and he said to those who sold doves take these things away and do not make my father's house 
a house of merchandise. Then his disciples remembered that it was written, Zeal for your house has eaten me up. That was a prophecy about the Messiah that Jesus fulfilled. And it says then in verse 18, So the Jews answered and said to him, What sign do you now uh, show us, show to us, since you have done these things? That's uh, a way of saying, What right did you have to do that? Who do you think you are anyway, right? So Jesus answered and said to them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. And then the Jews said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up again in three days? But he was speaking of the temple of his body. Therefore, when he had risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this to them and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had said. Now, when I read through this, notice that in this whole passage, not a single miracle took place. Nothing where Jesus touched something and it was healed, uh, restored something or created anything, not at all. This is a story that emphasizes the fact that he was God in human flesh. And you notice the first thing that uh, it draws attention to here is he with his family and his disciples, they go to Capernaum, to Capernaum. Now, Capernaum is on the north side of the Sea of Galilee. Sammy and I got to go there. I meant to put the picture in there of us standing by the gate of the city there. This is where a um, lot of things happened. I'll give you some scriptures to look at in just a little bit. It became a very significant city. This is uh, a place that kind of became home base for the Lord Jesus as uh, he was doing his work. It's a very beautiful place, and the Sea of Galilee there is very beautiful, and there's a lot of fishing and things that go on there. It did in the day of Jesus as well. And uh, apparently they stopped after being at the wedding. Remember last week we saw the weddings were about a, a week long, and Mary was kind of in charge of a lot of things. They probably needed a break. Probably needed a vacation or something like that. So they go to Capernaum. And uh, that reminds me that, you know, Jesus, while he was on earth, he had to eat food, had to keep his calories up. He had to exercise. He had to drink water. He had to sleep. He got tired. There were times he took naps, things like that. All of those things that you would not expect for God to do. Indeed, God doesn't have to do any of those things. But Jesus did while he was on earth because he was God in human flesh. It brings up something else too. The Roman Catholic Church teaches that Mary was a uh, special person. Well, she was, but maybe not in the way they describe it. And they say that she was perpetually a virgin. And yet it says in here that Jesus went with his mother and his brothers. Did you know Jesus had siblings? And the Bible says in, uh, I believe it's Matthew, that Joseph did not know her, meaning have sexual relations with her, until after Jesus was born. And then they had a normal marriage and they had normal childbearing and pregnancies and births and all those kind of things. And so uh, this is kind of a mixed family. One of them is 
deity in human flesh and the others are just flesh. Can you imagine what their lives were like? And can you imagine how hard it would be to be Jesus' little brother? And uh, so they are all together here and this speaks of the humanity of Jesus. He had friends, he had his disciples there, he had a mother, the Bible says in the book of Galatians. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. And uh, all of that happened because this is the plan of God. God would put on human flesh come to earth, live the life that we could never live, that no human had ever lived, and uh, completely satisfy God's demand for perfection. The Bible says, Be ye perfect as your Father in heaven also is perfect. There's only one problem with that. You've already blown it. Your perfection was gone a long time ago, and uh, you can't fix that. You have to have a perfect Savior, a perfect sacrifice. And so Jesus, living in this earth, living with unsaved brothers and sisters, living in the uh, stresses of life today, the ups and the downs, the good, the bad, the betrayals, and yet he did all of that without sin. No sinful thoughts, no sinful motives. He never forgot to do anything he was supposed to do, and he did everything that he was required to do. Praise his name that he would do that because it wasn't just enough for him to be the lamb that was sacrificed on the cross. The lamb had to be an unblemished lamb and that was a picture of our Messiah and our Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ and his perfection. But this just these uh, verses just drip with his humanity. They drip with just the normal things that he would go through. Now, when we think about uh, him going to Capernaum, actually he was from Nazareth, that's where he was raised, born in Bethlehem, and then they went to Egypt because Herod wanted to kill him, and then they go to Nazareth. And uh, Nazareth was not terribly far from Capernaum, and apparently he switched his uh, base to Capernaum. Now when I read in the Gospels, I remember a time when Jesus went to preach in the synagogue in his hometown. And you would think, oh, they would be so proud of him. The, the great rabbi Jesus is going to come. He's one of ours. He's one of us. And you remember he sat down with the scroll and he read out of Isaiah, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me and he has anointed me to preach the Gospel to the poor and all of that. And then he tells them, this scripture is fulfilled today in your midst. And they didn't break out in applause. There were no amens, but there was a rumbling. Who does this guy think he is? Is he not the son of the carpenter, the village carpenter, Joseph? We've known him since he was a kid. Who in the world does he think he is? So no wonder he changed his home base. He said a prophet is without honor except in his own hometown. Well, that was certainly true in that situation. They even wanted to stone him. So that makes sense that he would want to change his home base to this place called Capernaum. And uh, this was the hometown. A lot of things happened here. The hometown of uh, Matthew, the tax collector. And it's not far from Bethsaida. That's the hometown of Simon Peter and his brother Andrew. And Simon Peter later apparently relocated to Capernaum as well. In fact, we saw an excavation that they believe was the Apostle Peter's house there in uh, Capernaum. And we uh, saw the synagogue 
And uh, they have a, a new synagogue that was built, I don't know, a couple of thousand years ago nearly. That's on top of the one that Jesus would have gone in. And uh, it's real interesting to see all of the ruins there and to think about what a significant city that uh, this actually was. Because when we think about Capernaum in the New Testament, I mean, I just do this just to show you how significant it was for uh, whatever purposes or reason. A lot of great things happened there. And uh, the Bible says that in Matthew chapter 4, verse 13, that leaving Nazareth, he came and lived in Capernaum which is by the sea, the region of Zebulun and Naphtali. And, and that, by the way, was in fulfillment of a prophecy as well. It's also mentioned in Matthew chapter 8, verse 5, that that's where the centurion came to him and uh, needed to have a healing done, and that's where Jesus did it. That was Capernaum. In uh, Matthew eleven twenty three, Jesus says, You, Capernaum, are exalted to heaven, but you will go down to Hades, for if the mighty works had been done in Sodom, which were done in you, uh, it would have remained until this day. That's quite an indictment, isn't it? And then in Matthew 17, 24, it says that they came to Capernaum and those who collected the temple tax, they came to Peter and they go, is your master not going to pay the temple tax? Well, if you think about it, that temple was dedicated to him. Because it was for the worship of God. He shouldn't have had to pay the tax. But Peter couldn't without thinking. He goes, well, of course he does. And uh, that put him in a little bit of a pickle. And uh, Peter is in a little trouble with Jesus. And then Jesus, the forgiving, kind person that he is, he says to Peter, go out there and catch a fish. And when Peter caught a fish, guess what? It had a gold coin in it, enough to pay the temple tax that Jesus didn't really owe, but paid anyway, just for his testimony. It's also mentioned in Mark chapter uh, 1, verse 21, and it says that they went into Capernaum immediately on the Sabbath day and he entered into the synagogue and he taught. And that's where he would get in trouble for doing a miracle on the uh, Sabbath day. You can't work on the Sabbath. And apparently miracle, uh, performing a miracle is some kind of a work that the Pharisees didn't like. Uh, also in Mark chapter 2 verse 1, that when he entered again into Capernaum after some days... It was heard that he was in the house and they just mobbed the place because they were always wanting miracles. And you can see the other scriptures that are on there that this was not just an insignificant uh, you know, kind of a place. This is a place where by the plan of God and for the purposes of God, Jesus did a lot of mighty works there. And this is where he is in the early days of his ministry after the wedding in uh, Cana in Galilee that he goes there to Capernaum. Not much accident. Maybe he was looking for a house. Maybe he was buying some real estate. Maybe he was getting a builder or uh, something like that. We don't know. Maybe he just uh, kind of rested and uh, there by the Sea of Galilee. Maybe, uh, you know, just it was a pleasant, peaceful experience for him. But the Bible goes on to say that we're going to, uh, well, it doesn't give us any detail about him staying there. It just emphasizes as a human, look, at, there he is with his family, with his friends, just like you would do, just like a lot of people do. And just like even uh, on a day like today, the lakes are probably filled with people doing uh, most of what Jesus is doing here. 
But the second thing we see is that as a human, Jesus had to fulfill the law. You look in verse 13 and it says, Now the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now when you look on a map, you might go, went up to Jerusalem. Uh, that, is that because it was north? No, actually it was south of where he was. And uh, the Jews always said they were going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem sat on a higher elevation. There were hills around it that you had to climb. So it didn't matter where you were going or what you were doing. You always went up to Jerusalem. And uh, we've seen on Wednesday night some of those psalms called Psalms of Ascent because they were climbing those hills and they were heading up to Jerusalem for one of the uh, pilgrimage feasts, they called them. And uh, one of those was, of course, the Passover. So Jesus is fulfilling the law, and he is going there to celebrate Passover. Can you imagine? And can you imagine what his thoughts were? Because the Passover was in celebration of their liberation from Egypt. And that night on that tenth plague, where the Jews put the blood of the unblemished lamb on their doorposts, and the death angel passed over them. But in all of Egypt, the firstborn even of the flocks of the animals, they all died. Can you imagine the weeping and the wailing that took place on that? But the Israelis were spared. And Jesus is going to celebrate that. I wonder what he knew that they didn't know. I wonder what meaning it had for him as the God-man that the Jews just kind of, uh, oh, lamb again? Can we not have anything different? Can we not change things up? No, you had to do it in exactly the right way way in the right order. In fact, they call that meal that they had the Seder, S-E-D-E-R, which actually means order. They were to do it the same way, in the same order, perpetually. And Jesus was no different than anyone else. He obeyed what the law had to teach him. And there he is going up to worship, going up to remember what God had done for his ancestors to remember freedom from slavery, and to remember the land that would deliver them from death, probably thinking about himself and his upcoming sacrifice, if you can imagine. And the Jews have not been able to do this, not going to the temple anyway, because there is no temple right now, so they can't sacrifice those lambs. So they'll have a Passover in their home and remember that. And so Jesus is... Fulfilling the law. Born of a woman, Paul said, under the law. Under the law. It means that he was responsible to keep all of the law. If he did not keep the law of the Jews, he was disqualified for being our perfect Savior. When the Jews pray, they put on a tallet. That's that shawl thing that they wear. And they have fringes all around them. There are if my memory serves me correctly, 613 fringes. If that's not, it's over 600, I know that. One for each point of the law they're supposed to keep. Can you imagine? You can't even name the Ten Commandments, I'll bet you. They would have to pray, and they would go through each fringe, would remind them of a law that they were supposed to pray about and supposed to keep. Now, the law could never bring righteousness. It was never designed to do that. The law was designed to expose sin, number one, and number two, point to the coming of the Messiah who would pay for all of those sins. 
And that's why they were supposed to offer those sacrifices. It reminded me, the sacrifice would remind me, if I were a Jew living in those days, of my failure to keep all of those laws. And it would also remind me that God was going to provide the ultimate sacrifice for that sin. You think that was on Jesus' mind? I bet it was. I bet he was thinking about all of that and thinking about how in just a short time he would be dying on the cross for the sins of all who would believe in him to pay the perfect sacrifice for our sins. But when he comes into Jerusalem and he goes to the temple and they had certain things that they would do to get ready for Passover and uh, offering the uh, Paschal lamb as a sacrifice before they had the feast. And he goes into the temple and he goes and sees in that outer court of the temple, the court of the Gentiles, the place where you and I would go. And they have found signs from the digs in that temple area warning Gentiles, don't go any further or you're under the penalty of death. They were pretty serious about all of that kind of stuff. You just couldn't go in there and take a tour and wander around or anything like that. There was a certain place where you and I would go as Gentiles. Now, we were welcome in that part. And you remember Jesus had said in another gospel, My Father's house, the temple, is to be a house of prayer for all nations. And so if you as a Gentile were impressed by what they were doing, curious about what they were doing, or maybe you were thinking about becoming a proselyte, a convert, to worship the God of Israel instead of the pagan gods that you had bowed down to, you would go to the court of the Gentiles. But like Jesus, you would have found they weren't really all that serious about Gentiles coming in. They didn't really care all that much. Israel was not the light to the nations that they were supposed to be. How do we know that? Because that's where all of this stuff that Jesus encountered, that's where it was all set up, in the outer courts, in the court there where the Gentiles would go. And what were they doing? Because this story tells us, as we look at this third point, that we see the humanity of Jesus, but we also see his uh, deity, certainly, in the fact that he had anger, but unlike ours... It was righteous anger. Have you ever heard anybody claim that my righteous, my, I'm angry, but it's righteous anger? And somehow I kind of doubt that. I'm not sure because sin always seems to sneak in. And my righteous anger always has a little bit of selfishness, a little bit of how dare they, a little bit of that offends me, a little bit of I'm right in this and you're wrong, that kind of thing. It just, even if it's small and minute and unwanted, it always seems to sneak in. But none of that is happening with the Lord Jesus. His anger is righteous. You know, the Bible does say for all of us, be angry and sin not. Okay? I'm still trying to figure out how to do that. The anger part, I got, I've got that down. Okay? I can get angry and have a, a flash of that uh, in a heartbeat. Okay? But the sin not thing bothers me because as far as I can tell, every time I've gotten angry, I've ended up having to apologize to a person and to the Lord. Okay? But Jesus had this thing in a different way. The Bible says that his anger came out in verse 14. And he found in the temple those who sold oxen and sheep and doves. Well, what's wrong with that? And money changers. 
okay, what's really wrong with that? What's the big deal? Doing business. Now, I've had some people say you should never sell candy bars or T-shirts or anything like that in the church. And they use these kind of things. I think they kind of miss the point here. And you notice here, again, the humanity of Jesus. What do you think of Jesus? You know, meek and mild and weak. Look at verse 15. And when he had made a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the money changers money and look at this overturned the tables i have been uh, told that the type of tables and the wood that they made that they would have in there would have weighed in excess of 200 pounds now depending on how long they were Uh, You know, if they're really, really long, which they probably were, can you imagine going over and... I mean, I can't even imagine going over and trying to... It would take a lot for me to overturn our dining room table, much less something like this. Now, at the same time, he's taken a whip and uh, single-handedly... Have you ever been around cattle? When it says oxen, cattle, they're pretty big. They may have had horns. I don't know. He drove them out with that whip. He drove the sheep out. I don't have any experience with sheep. Don't know. Maybe that was not that big a deal. But then he also drove the people out. And this is a plurality of people. This is not a one-on-one type thing. One man goes in there, takes a whip, drives everything out, turns the tables over, and uh, you know, pretty much tells them what for. Now, you know what that tells me about Jesus? What a powerful man he was. He did that in his humanity. If you think about Jesus with some of the pictures you've seen, that's some middle, uh, middle Ages person, European, uh, putting a picture together of what they think Jesus is. And, you know, kind of, holy Jesus, meek and mild. I think if you were to see him in his humanity, you would be shocked at how stocky he was, how big his muscles were, how powerful he was. He probably was not very tall. He was not a skinny man, but he was a very, very strong man. And when he got to work inside of there, he could take care of business, and those people in there didn't dare try to fight him, contest him, or anything like that. I can only imagine what that situation was like. Okay, well, let's uh, talk about this. What got him so ticked off? Well, when you look around at the Jews and you realize they lived in the Roman Empire, Jews lived all over the Roman Empire. And so they would come back once a year for Passover. And when they got back to the temple, the uh, temple as a service, they had sacrificial animals already pre-approved. Ready to go, kosher, whatever they might say. And uh, they were ready for it. So you go, okay, I need two lambs for my family, please. And they say, okay, that'll be 50 shekels. Uh, Sorry, all I've got is denarii here. And they would go, "Uh, sorry, we can't take those here. Oh, man, what am I going to do? Ah, as a public service, we happen to have the money changers over here. And you'll get a very good exchange rate today. By the way, we're having a special And so you would go over to that person and you would change in your Roman money, your Greek money, and then they would give you shekels for it at a a cost, of course, at a profit, of course. And you say, well, what's wrong with that? Well, apparently 
the way Jesus describes this, they were doing it in a way that, well, I wouldn't be surprised if the high priest didn't own the sheep. Okay? And if you brought your own sheep in, it was always going to be what? Disqualified. But we have these over here. Oh, that's five times what mine would cost. Sorry. These are the ones that are pre-approved. And uh, the exchange rate down at uh, uh, the bank on the way over here was, you know, 15 to 1 and you're charging 20 to 1. Sorry. That's the way it works. You've got to have Jewish money in order to do this. Now, you get the idea? It was for profit. It was not a service. It was not for convenience. It was for profit. I mean, they were ripping off all of the people that were coming to worship God. And they loved every minute of it, and it was the best time of year. You know, it was the most wonderful time of the year, I guess they would sing. And uh, that's when they made their money. That's when they really got it all together. And when Jesus saw that, he was saying, you are ripping off the poor. And you are charging people who have, have gone through all of the expense and the time to travel from the far reaches of the Roman Empire. And now you're going to do this? When I thought of that, I thought about going to the movies. Next time you go to the movies, pop your own popcorn and uh, take your own Coke and walk through there and try to buy a ticket and try to do that. What do you think they're going to say if you do that and you're not sneaking it in? You're just out in the open. Uh, sorry, you cannot bring those things in here. But we have this nice concession stand where you may go and purchase it. And that popcorn that probably cost about, you know, 30 cents, it's going to be about 6 or $7, right? And if you get the special where you get the big Coke and the big popcorn and maybe even a, a refill, it might be like $17. Hey, you think they're making any money off of that? That's the picture. That's what they were doing. And this $5 lamb was, uh, oh, it's been certified, uh, ready for the sacrifice, 20 bucks, right? And these doves over here that you could get anywhere else, you could probably even catch one for free around there uh you know fifty dollars there you go take it or leave it and uh, you've got to use our money and uh, you know all of that is happening because this is not about god this is not about redemption this is not about their religion this is not about history and remembrance of these things this is all about money and it's making money for the high priest. It's making money for his family. It's making money for all of those people that are in there. It's all about the money. Follow the money. It is corrupt. It is oppressive. It is disgusting. And Jesus has had enough. After all, because he is God, whose temple is it anyway? That was dedicated to him. And it was his glory that showed up whenever they built it, right? And they've made it a den of thieves. They've made it a place of robbery instead of a place of blessing. That's the point. And so he throws them all out. And they don't even really arrest him. They don't protest. They don't call the authorities. They don't do anything like that. I think by this point, they were flat out afraid of this guy. Man, this guy is powerful. This guy is angry. This guy is absolutely amazing. And yet, he did all of this without sin because of the honor of his father and because of what it was doing to other people this is the compassion of jesus he's got to do something about this 
and he is going to put a stop to it, and he's going to make a statement about it, if nothing else. This is a religious ripoff, and that is all it is. That's the entire thing. Now, when we uh, think about these things, these, the Jews would make such a great big deal about the sacrifices and uh, what they would do, but they were empty. They didn't mean anything. They attached no meaning to it whatsoever. And this had been a problem for a long time. Listen to Isaiah 1, 11 through 17. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. And when you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more, listen to this, vain, meaning empty. Bring no more empty offerings because it is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations cannot ensure equity and solemn, uh, uh, pardon me, cannot, I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feast, my soul hates. I didn't say that. That's God saying that. Why was he saying that? After all, you're the one that said to do it. Yeah, but he never said do it hypocritically. He never said do it in an empty manner. He never said divorce the meaning from what you're doing. You see, they would go in there proud of you know, their animals. So they bring in an ox, a bull, and they offer it. And then they look down over at this other altar, and there's somebody offering theirs, and their, their little bull is so scrawny. And not worth near as much as yours. Look how much you have sacrificed for God. And instead of seeing your sin, and instead of thinking about the day the Messiah would come, you're kind of puffed up. God must really like my offering. My offering looks better than anybody else's. Everybody's going to see what I have brought to the temple. And God said, you make me want to puke. Right? And there are other verses we could go through with that. Think about David in Psalm 51. He said uh, when he was confessing his sin, You don't desire burnt offering and sacrifice or else I would bring it to you. What you want is a broken heart. What you want is sincerity in all of this kind of stuff. So Jesus is looking at all of this and he's saying, What a mockery. What a sham. What a ripoff. And uh, this is the kind of thing that was not going to satisfy God. This is the kind of thing that was not going to bless God. This was not anything like that at all. Remember Saul tried something like that. Oh, we kept all these sheep we were supposed to kill for a sacrifice. And Samuel said to him, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. In other words, God is saying, don't put so much emphasis on the ritual that you don't forget I'm really looking to your heart and I'm really looking for you to be right with me and I'm really looking for you to understand redemption and everything else that is going on. And then we find number four here that Jesus, as a man, is actually prophesying in all of this. And what is he prophesying? 
the uh, people come up to him and they said, how dare you do this? Give us a sign that shows you you're qualified. And he said, okay, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. Tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. And they thought, are you kidding me? That temple? You see, this was the second temple. And some people say actually uh, the third, but that's kind of a technicality. The first temple was built by Solomon and it was destroyed by the Babylonian exile by Nebuchadnezzar in 586 B.C. Well, after they got released from Babylon and they came back, they eventually built a, a smaller, not quite as nice, not quite as impressive temple. But a uh, long time after that, when Herod the Great came along, the same one that tried to kill Jesus, the one who talked to the wise man, he did a lot of construction and he did a lot of upgrades around Jerusalem and the places where he lived. And one of the things he did was the temple. And he really did a, a, an amazing job on the temple and made it into a show place once again. And that's what they're making reference to. The 46 years would count the time of original construction plus the upgrade and the remodeling of all of that. Because they couldn't cut stones on the temple site. They had to cut the stones at the quarry. And then when they brought it back, it had to fit perfectly. Can you imagine how long that would take? And how many they would have to throw away? And how long and tedious that would be in a day where there weren't any power tools. And you couldn't use them on the temple site anyway. It had to be quiet. And so uh, these people are going, what a fool. This guy thinks that we can tear down a temple that was... Uh, that took 46 years to build and raise it up in three days. But the Bible tells us he was not making reference to that temple, but this temple. This temple. Raise it up in three days. And John, as he writes decades later about this, he said, and after the resurrection, we remembered that. We remembered one thing, zeal for your house has eaten me up, has consumed me, in other words. And then they remembered at the rest pardon me, the resurrection later on. But I think, too, as I read this story, there's another prophecy that most people don't see. See, most people are not threatened by a Jesus in a manger. Oh, let's go help the little baby. Oh, the poor little baby. Oh, it's so sad. They're not threatened by that. Most people are not threatened by a weak, anemic, meek, soft-spoken, kind, never judges, never confronts anything. And I read this and I go, are you kidding me? He made a judgment here, didn't he? He wasn't happy and he did something about it. And it reminds me that Jesus said, the Father has committed all judgment to the Son. If you're not saved here today, what you see in here is a Sunday school picnic to what you're going to face one day when you stand before the Lord. And you try to defend yourself. Look at the good works I've done. Look at all the things I've helped. Look at the money that I've given. Certainly I deserve to come into heaven. And if you think that this throwing out the money changers in the temple was kind of a, oh, that's a Jesus I've never seen before. Let me just put it this way. You ain't seen nothing yet. God hates sin and God is going to judge sin you say well that doesn't sound good that's not an uplifting message well let me finish for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life you see God grades strictly on keeping the law you either keep all of it or all of it testifies against you 
And if you're going to try to defend yourself and call yourself a good person and say, I certainly am worthy, the good outweighs the bad, you haven't seen the wrath of Jesus in anything close to that. It's going to be absolutely amazing. But that same Jesus that has so much wrath toward sin and hates sinners. In Psalm 711, think of the story and you can always remember that reference. Psalm 711, it says God is angry with sinners every day. You know why? Because he's a God who doesn't change. He's always hated sin. And he's angry with people who would say, I'll do it my way. I don't care what your law says. I don't care what you think. I'll do it my way. And that stirs up the anger of God. But that same God that is angry with sinners is the same one who died for sinners. He's the one who shed his own blood for sinners. And so if you're going to say, well, that's not fair, what's going on? Think about this. It's not fair that an innocent Savior would die on a cross. It's not fair that he would be betrayed. It's not fair that he would be beaten. It's not fair that he would be nailed to that cross. And it's not fair that the wrath of God would be hurled upon him for your sin. But when you see that, it may not be fair. But oh, what great love. Greater love has no man than this, Jesus said, than that one should lay down his life for a friend. And that's exactly what he did for you. So you can either stand on your own and say, I'm good enough, I think I'm fine the way I am, and you have never seen wrath like you were going to face. Or you could humble yourself today and say, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I come to you and I confess my sins and I ask you to cleanse me by the blood of Christ and I believe and fully place my trust that Jesus paid for all of my sins, that he rose from the dead and that he is the Lord of all and I surrender to you today. And the Bible says, whoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. What an amazing, amazing God we have when he has every reason to condemn us but he also provides the sacrifice that would free us and welcome us into the family of God. Have you fully trusted in Christ this hour? Do you understand what we see in here in the humanity of Jesus is restrained and it's limited and it's different than what it'll be when you stand before him when he is at the judgment seat? Jesus is the only way to escape hell. He's the only way to please the Father. He's the only way to be right with God. And that's why he said of himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So we see our Savior, who's both God and man, and we see his humanity, and we see his anger when God is dishonored, and we can only imagine what it's going to be like. But we also see the loving Lamb of God who died in our place to free us from our sin and to keep us saved. And that's why you're here today. If you've never trusted him, I pray that you will. Call out to him. Somebody around you can help you. Brother Chad down here at the front, they can bring you to him, and he can get someone to counsel you. And we would love to be able to help you because we have found a friend in Jesus. We have found that he is the greatest love that we have ever experienced. And we have found the one who never leaves us, never forsakes us, never abandons us. And when we stand before God, we will stand free and clear and our record will be clean because of Jesus' death, burial, 
and resurrection who paid for our sins in full. And all God's people said, Heavenly Father, we want to thank you because we have no way of even imagining what it would be like to face your wrath at the judgment seat or to face your wrath forever in a hell prepared for the devil and his angels. But we do thank you, Lord. We have known and have experienced the love of God, the peace of God, the grace of God. And we thank you, Lord, that that's all because Jesus did what he did because he put on humanity, came to earth so that he could bleed, so that he could die, so that he could suffer, and so that he could keep the law that we could never keep. So all we can say is, hallelujah, thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.